Um, so I'm driving and, I, and I'm in this convoy and I've got all these GIs in my, my truck and the VC would put bombs on kids, strap them up and make the kids go up to GI, GIs and then detonate them. And the kids would come up, you know, asking for candy and things like that. And he says, I'm in this convoy and it's kind of stop and go and this little boy's coming to me and I can see through his open shirt that he's wired. And he goes, I had to make a decision. I'm either going to have to kill a kid or I'm going to have to allow him to kill me and everybody in this truck. And like I said to you in New York, Owen, that's a that's a that's a decision that no human being should ever have to face. So welcome back to the Restore podcast with myself, Owen Walker. In this session, I am interviewing Scott Johnson on reframing mental health. Scott is an ordained pastor and has supported people through mental health for close to 40 years. He's also the director of an international development for an NGO, Solar Cool Technologies, which provides solar power and coal chain supply in off-grid regions to the world. He's a former manager of various other NGOs as well, and he's a telemedicine consultant working on major projects to bring telemedicine and solar power solutions to East Africa. In the last stretch of his life, he's been pulling together his experiences, learnings and connections into consulting networks and businesses called Sufficient LLC. So what I really wanted to do is have a conversation with Scott about reframing mental health from a number of perspectives. And this is really around looking at some of the current definitions and perspectives on mental health. So redefining PTSD and some of the labels we use. Talking about self-care and how we perceive self-care. And then just some anecdotal stories on Scott's behalf about how to actively listen to people. Um, I also wanted to get drill into Scott's experience about counselling dying patients in the last phase of life and just Scott's learning and and sort of anecdotal experience as a pastor in counselling people with terminal illness. Um, then we get, get Scott's perspective on grief, uh, both in the current climate and uh, as a pastor on some of the most horrendous but also relevant uh, stories about grief that, that Scott's learnt from and just that grief journey and how to process grief appropriately. Then we look at uh, the military and mental health and then some final take-home messages from Scott. So please do enjoy this varied and wide-ranging conversation with a fantastic and insightful guest. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Owen, I'm so happy. You know, I've been looking forward to this ever since we were in New York City a couple of weeks ago. So thank you. I'm, I'm really honored, really honored. You're right. We met in in New York a few a few weeks ago, and I uh, really sensed you had not only a story to tell, but um, a vast wealth and depth of experience to draw from. So I really wanted to dig into that actually. So Scott, um, as we sort of dig into your background, could you maybe just start by uh, running us through your journey into pastoral care and 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 maybe wider humanitarian aid? Just how did you become a pastor, and just maybe your your story around. Uh, coaching people with mental love. Okay. Um, well, it all actually began growing up. My dad's a pastor, but I never thought I'd be a pastor. Never wanted to be a pastor. Um, I'm a, a person of uh, ecology and conservation. 
So I went into college with a master of uh, pursuing a biology degree. Uh, my goal was to be a wildlife biologist and like three quarters of the way uh, through my college career, uh, it, I was an RA, which means you, you're like a dorm leader. And it was crazy how many people would just unload and talk. And going into my senior year, uh, more people kept telling me that I should be a minister. And I said, no, because people fall asleep when I'm talking. I'm not going to be a minister. And uh, and uh, I said, uh, you know, like, you guys are either on drugs or you've had too much to drink because I'm not going to do that. But it really kept eating at me. And so I decided, well, maybe I should just give it a try. And I did. Um, and then uh, my master's in divinity was a three-year degree. And after my second year, I received a fellowship to study in a third world country and went to the newly liberated country of Zimbabwe. So this was 1982. And that that was life-changing uh, right there. And um, I always wanted to do mission work after that, even though I came back in and, and did pastoral work. Uh, but there was always a heart to get back to Africa and, and, and emissions. But um, I also saw... Uh, like extreme poverty um, and extreme need and struggled with what, what can I do about that? So Scott, you know, as, as you're journeying through, you're, you're a young man. Uh, were you brought up in a, in a Christian or a house of faith? Was it, were your parents uh, yeah. faithful? Yeah. Um, but my mom and dad were practical people. They wanted us to experience the world and to understand that we were networked and there was no judgment as an early kid. I'm not talking about, I was born in 1957, so I was 65 years old. So I cut my teeth on the civil rights movement. And as a kid, I remember in the summer, there was an exchange program and we had African-American kids from the inner city come and spend a week with us. So my parents started early on saying that, you know, we're all in this together. Um, and and that, that always had a profound impact on me, but I wasn't going to be a pastor, and I I went really far uh, <laughs> in, into uh, college. Uh, you know, like my like my seminary professor said, he said, <laughs> "You got to learn about sin in order to preach against it." <laughs> so, uh, but I also studied the religions of the world, and my first year. And I came away going, man, what makes Christianity so different? I mean, I'm seeing stuff in all these other religions that's so close to Christianity. And I'm getting blown away. I studied Hinduism, Chinism, Confucianism, but I love the Tao, T-A-O, the Tao. So I'm yeah. just coming out of this going, there's a lot of truth in all of this. And, and, and that's formed a lot of my theology is seeking truth where I find it. As wise as serpents, as innocent as doves. That's right. And you know what? One day God showed me that he also put that in the right order. Wise as a serpent and as gentle as a dove. Because if you get it reversed and you're as gentle as a dove, you might be a dead dove. <laughs> and I go, well, that makes sense. Now I got to learn how to be as wise as a serpent because I like to be the gentle dove. And I go, I'm going to get eaten. <laughs> So Scott, on this journey, you know, you're a young man, you've decided to walk the path of, of 
or ordination and indeed yeah. of ministerial studies studying the uh, to become an ordained pastor did you did at that time were you drawn to sort of counseling people and and or pastoring people because there is certain the i if i'm right in thinking within the church there's the certain sort of disciplines around um apostleship um around prophet, uh, prophetic yeah, um yeah um, around pastoral were you drawn to more of a pastoral role or, or were you were you sort of divided or I guess were you just feeling out as you, as you went um it's always it's always been pastoral um and and what grieved me Owen was that seminaries don't prepare you to be pastors um the, the pastoral counseling side of things and those courses believe it or not I didn't get my first one until I was in a third year but I had, I had four semesters of church history, and I was like, I haven't used this at all. And and I just really, really regretted it. So once I got into the field, man, it's like getting thrown into deep water because I, I, I would just say there is so much pain in this world. And the church is a community of people struggling uh, with pain. And how do we live fully but how can we die faithfully and peacefully so i realized that ministry is boiled down to how can i help people live holy w-h-o-l-l-y and how do i help them die uh, peacefully knowing that they have been released of things and so that pulled me into a journey of being a hospice chaplain. And while when you talk about restoring and the the listening that we talked about in New York, um, that that put me on a whole huge learning curve right there. So let's just let's just pause there for a second and yeah. actually just rewind slightly because I think to have a wider appreciation of suffering you almost as you just said before you have to you almost have to willingly subject yourself to to malevolence and or disparity and or social deprivation outside of your circle in another plane in another culture to mm -hmm. uh, just to appreciate not only your own culture but to appreciate and practice gratitude for what you do have around you. Yeah. So, you know, speaking to your experience in maybe sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Scott, very much was my experience in Malawi and, and other sub-Saharan countries whereby I was holding a small child of six months old in my hands. Um, it was malnourished. It had TB in its spine. It was HIV positive and it had uh, malaria. Mm. It was breathing at about 45 mm resps per minute you know it was acutely sick and the mother was just looking at me just absolutely helplessly and I was in the I was in Malawi in Blantyre in the Queen's Hospital in Blantyre and that experience alone I, I've lived consequently subsequently in Nairobi and in Mogadishu in in Somalia and in um in Egypt and all across Africa actually but subjecting yourself willingly to the a disparity of health disparity of income disparity of opportunity 
allows you to not only practice gratitude but just to just to step outside of yourself and when I held that child in my hands Scott that little baby that was that was really close really quite close to death it made me think Owen you have your worries in life are absolutely potted and finite compared to what other people are going through mm-hmm. and what other, you know, in, in a hospital where the nursing staff don't exist. So yeah. the mother was actually also the nurse yeah. and, and, and there was only doctors, you know, it just, and to your experience as well, Scott, it brings you out of your comfort zone, allows you to appreciate the disparity and then, and then causes a period of self-reflection um, to think, what am I on this earth? to do what yeah. is my role on this earth and I, I suppose your journey into in your, your voluntary subject placing yourself in that place Scott probably brought a lot out of you and caused you to probably question your trajectory and what what you could give back yeah yeah you you have no idea what you have triggered um so when I was in Zimbabwe um I would I went down to a mission down along the border of Mozambique and you know from your experience, people will travel for miles to get to a mission hospital. And this mother had brought in a baby, um, probably about two to three months old, and it had a staph infection. But it was one of those flesh-eating kind of bacteria. And when you're talking, oh, and I'm just reliving this whole thing, this baby the the flesh had been eaten off and it was beyond pain i think and i i was seeing what was underneath flesh and i asked the doctor what's going to happen and he said unfortunately this baby's going to die and then the mother's right next to me and, and you ask that existential question, so what, what am I going to do? And this baby is as precious to this mother as any other baby is. And it would take years, um, I, not, not that I ever got over it, because that baby is riveted in my mind, and it is a driving force for me. But how do you keep from being paralyzed uh, and feeling like I, I can't do it all so uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with, uh, I, and I live a lot with parables and stories, as you know, when we walk there in New York. So there's a, a story of the starfish, and um, a guy goes to a beach early in the morning, and he's walking along the beach, and overnight the high tide had washed thousands of starfish up on the beach, and, and the tide had receded, leaving these starfish stranded, and there's thousands. And if you don't think this is true, just Google images and, and, and type in starfish stranded on beaches and you will see exactly what happens. So it is real. Um, so anyway, this older man is coming the other direction. And um, every once in a while, the old man stops, picks something up, throws it into the ocean. And as the young guy comes closer to the old guy, he realizes, oh, this guy's picking up starfish <laughs> and throwing them back in the ocean. And as he comes up to the old man, he says, old man, sir, what you're doing can't matter. There are thousands of starfish washed up on this beach. You can't get them all back into the ocean. So, so why even bother? It doesn't matter. And the old man, you know, talking about wise as serpent, the wise old man didn't say anything. He picked up a starfish, threw it in the ocean, 
looked the young man in the eye and said, it mattered to that one. And when I heard that, Owen, because I've done a lot of work in Haiti and I thought I saw poverty in Africa until I went to Haiti. And it's just overwhelming. But the starfish story helped me and maybe it will help some of your listeners. We are not responsible for getting all the starfish back into the ocean. The real question for humanity and the real question for each one of us, for me, is what are you going to do with the starfish that's down at your feet? Okay, what, what are you going to do about that starfish? And what can you do to get them back into the ocean where they belong? And that gets back to that access you and I are talking about. What can I do? Is it is it I can I can, you know, give a hundred dollars or something a month to to help uh, through some really reputable NGO to help somebody? Is it what's going on in Ukraine with WHAM and, and donating? You know, what 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 about what about that lonely person? What about that person sitting next to you on the subway that you know is suffering and is and is washed up on the beach? Or the old people in the nursing home. It's like, there's a starfish. I can't take care of everybody in the nursing home. But maybe that one person that I pass in the hallway, I said, hi, how you doing? It, it comes back to what's in our sphere of influence. Because like you said, you can become overwhelmed and you see the figures of starvation or famine or indeed um, social deprivation within the developing world and it can be overwhelming but you're right yeah. the mandate is what's here and now what's within your grasp and what can you do uh, in your immediate in, in your immediate environment I think that's powerful Scott well let me let me just really uh, <laughs> sometimes people tell them uh, that you know I've uh, kind of kicked them in the shins from the pulpit and I said no I just dropped the gospel on your toes Okay, I'm gonna drop. I'm gonna drop this right here. Okay, some of those starfish are in our own home. It may be our spouse, maybe a sibling, it may be our kids, it may be our parents. But the problem is, is that somehow we have rationalized not getting them back into the ocean, and we need to, you know, do some real soul searching. That maybe that starfish. It's easy. It's easy to go outside the family. It's it's hard to do it inside the family. And 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 I'm no different, man. I am no different. It's hard. But that starfish may be your own family member. And it's really prudent to uh, do a zero point survey, start from within and yeah. work work outwards, which is which is powerful and painful. And uh, almost you're right, if it doesn't cost you, um you know it's worth doing it when it when it costs you um and yeah. when there's there's a price attached to to that scott so that's powerful yeah. and it's a question yeah. that everyone can ask because i think in adult adulthood there's, there's there's a certain proclivity to voluntary blindness that people practice i i can practice you know not yeah. addressing being quick to address things that they see in other yeah. people not addressing your own issues and that kind of voluntary Voluntary uh, blindness, which 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 will catch up with you if 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 you don't address it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, really interestingly, segueing with mental health, Scott, because actually, and I, I, I want I want to get in a second your version on mental health. Just around what I'd like to do is just get how you how you see and unpack mental health uh-huh. and a different way to look at it from your perspective. But what I one of my mandates is that actually. You know, I 
from a fertile ground, your your mental health is you know the seeds which you allow to grow, i.e. the thoughts. So the metaphor is you know the the, the seeds of the thoughts. You know the, the the fruition of the thoughts lead lead to actions, but the fertile ground is within our thought life, and it's within our individual perceptions of self and and or others. But how important it is to steward good a good a healthy thought life because through the fruition of that um is the manifestation of of good habits and mental health mm-hmm. or bad habits and mental health but even before habits scott desire because what 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 um what these what these seeds give rise to is desires you know and their the desire to uh to to practice a wholesome habit or, or practice or, or or a negative or or um malevolent uh habit uh, or desire but 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 it's 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 within the, f- the fertile garden of, of of your mind that you need to that you need to do a daily weeding and a, and, a, and, a, and a daily gardening really because um you know you again it's the it's the it's the ancient chinese uh proverb around feeding you've got two walls which one do you feed do you feed do you feed the good wolf or the bad wolf and because it, the one you feed grows um and but just coming back to the reframing piece um scott could i get you to could i just get you to unpack how you see mental health and and maybe some of the issues around labeling that we that, 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 that we do mm-hmm. so m- mental health um to me it compartmentalizes things from the start um because and i'm gonna i'm just gonna role play with you okay so okay don't take offense what i'm about to ask you okay so owen do you have a soul yes okay and i'm gonna tell you the answer really is no okay okay and the reason why i'm beginning here is that if we're gonna deal with mental health okay we've got to press through Okay, so you don't have a soul. I don't have a soul. Anybody that's listening to your podcast, I hate to tell you this. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but you do not have a soul. So here's the here's the difference. You are a soul. You have a body. You see, see, if I say I have a soul, then at some point I don't have it. Okay, so I have this book in my hand, but now I don't have it. So so mental health for me begins with helping people understand. Let's get down to who you really are. Okay, because that that desire and stuff like that, it it, it begins in the soul. So I am a soul. But what I have is a body because someday I'm not going to have the body. So so that is to me one of the most profound paradigm shifts does that make sense it does and, and and so like okay so so now when i deal with mental health i deal with it from the perspective that this person is a soul they have a body that body incorporates the brain but somewhere in there is this mind that kind of connects everything together and the health is triggered by the things that have happened to the soul. And that's why 
my friend uh, Deborah Grassman and her soul injury uh, project uh, and, and paradigm was life transforming for me. Um, she spent 30 years in palliative care uh, in the uh, Veterans Administration hospitals. And she always begins her presentations and her training. And I've gotten training under her, Owen, with let me tell you what 10,000 dying veterans taught me. And it's deeper than moral injury. It is injury to the soul. So, so what happens, and, and, and this is just a collage of different training and things I've read over the years, I have experienced some of the most profound healing and restoring in people when we, um, some people call it age regression. I don't look at that. It's getting people into a moment of prayer and asking God, who knows the number of hairs on her head and knows me better than I know myself, where are the pinpoints of pain? And Owen, it never ceases to amaze me because I tell people, keep your eyes closed and let God show you. And the, one of the most profound was an 80 some year old woman and I'd been counseling her and she was like holding on to a grease pig. She was going from one topic to the other and I'm trying to catch up with her. And I said, stop, let's, let's just try this. And we went into this and with her eyes closed, I will never forget this on. And you got to understand this lady is like a little over five feet tall. Okay. And she's, she's in this little prayer uh, posture and her eyes are like squeezed shut. And she goes, can it go back a long ways? And I said, it usually does. I said, what's coming to your mind? She goes, I'm in a house. I'm about five or six years old. And I'm wearing this beautiful white dress. My daddy has just bought me a piano and I'm learning how to play the piano. And my dad walks in the door and he tells me that we have lost everything in what would later become the Great Depression. And I go, okay, so keep playing that out. What's happening? We had to sell the house. We had to sell the piano. We had to move across the tracks. I had to go to a different school. I, I I was made fun of. The teacher even made fun of me. And Owen, everything that she said after that, I could tie into where that, you know, like they do with NCIS and they draw these, they take these strings and they have all these pictures. Everything that she was telling me beforehand, I could draw a string to it. But it happened at five years old. And it still defined her at 82 years old. But as she went through this, and, and you talk about restoring, it, it's really rooted in forgiveness. And it's forgiveness means to literally, if you look in the Hebrew word, it literally means to throw or cast away. And, 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 and even though it wasn't her dad's fault, I led her in this prayer to forgive her dad. And I could literally, she's talking about mental health and body, I literally, as we went through these different layers and different people and, and her, her life, I literally saw her countenance change from this darkness to this light. And, 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 and the next time I saw her in church, the, you know, that Sunday, it was like a totally, totally different person. It's that soul. You are a soul. You have a body. And then if you have people that have been abused, the body holds memories. 
um, the body is conditioned, the mental health is conditioned, and it, 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 it can be a horrible thing to try to un, un, untie so that they can be set free. But that, you got to understand there's a soul in there that's injured. That's, that's me. That's my view. Scott, that's profound because you, you, you really want to get to the root of the problem and start at the start. And looking at starting at the start, you know, for, the, for that woman, it was uh, age five. And, you know, everything, uh, every, everything um, kind of cataloged from, from that time. Um, yeah. Could you speak to, speaking at the start, Scott, around, you told me this profound story, and I wonder if you could recall it for listeners, yeah. um, around the story of a dying patient you counseled and how that profound, that experience was, was so profound and, and, and how you backtracked through his life to understand him more. So you're really trying to get to the root of the issue. You were talking the about the Vietnam veteran? Story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh Ministry is so different, Owen, because you come alongside of people and it's sacred ground. And when people are dealing with hospice and end of life, it's really holy ground. But that's where a lot of healing can take place, but it's also a very painful place. So, um, yeah, the story I told you, uh, told you in New York City was about um, – so as a hospice chaplain, I was still a I was still a pastor, but I met people way beyond the church. Okay, this guy hadn't been to church, but um, he had suffered cancer as a result of Agent Orange, and Agent Orange is a defoliation and a cancer causing agent. Um, and I guess he just felt safe enough around me to open up as he's dying. And he's trying to reconcile life and life choices. And um, he began by talking about coming home from Vietnam and he was wearing his uniform and coming into the airport. And this was after me lie and people were telling our, our soldiers they were baby killers and actually spitting on them. And he's coming to the airport and people are literally spitting on him. And he came home and he took off his uniform and he never put it back on. And he suffered um, all these years. Now, I'm in a very rural uh, community in Ohio, a very farming community, very pastoral. As an 18-year-old man, this guy is picked up and put into the rice paddies of Vietnam. You know, I had, put, I had barely put away my Tonka toys at the age of 18. You know, I, I wouldn't have survived. But he felt safe. And as we uh, journeyed together, he finally um, shared the crux. So he he was a uh, driver for those trucks for personnel that you see the old fashioned ones with the uh, canvas rounded top in the back. And I thought, OK, so driving truck must not have been a, a big problem. So why is he struggling so bad? So he told me, he said, Here, here's what I'm dealing with. Um, and I and I got to get some peace with this. Um, so I'm driving and, I, and I'm in this convoy and I've got all these GIs in my my truck and the VC would put bombs on kids, strap them up and make the kids go up to GI GIs and then detonate them. And the kids would come up, you know, asking for candy and things like that. And he says, I'm in this convoy 
and it's kind of stop and go and this little boy's coming to me and I can see through his open shirt that he's wired. And he goes, I had to make a decision. I'm either going to have to kill a kid or I'm going to have to allow him to kill me and everybody in this truck. And like I said to you in New York, Owen, that's a that's a that's a decision that no human being should ever have to face. And here's a kid, he's 18, 19 years old, and he's come from this very protective rural environment, and and he is having to make a decision to override everything he had ever been taught. You don't you're not even taught, don't kill a kid. I mean that that just doesn't even enter your head. And in that split instant, he had to shoot a child, and that is riveted in his soul and that's why we call it a soul injury because in so many things because we think it's oh it's religious and so we don't touch it with stuff that's spiritual and soul oriented then we have to talk about well it's a moral injury and and just that just makes my skin crawl because if it's a moral injury then all i'd have to do is change my moral view and my world view and i should be able to accept it but you can't do that why because it violates something that's so much deeper than just my morals or my mental thinking. It has affected my soul. And then it was the journey like, okay, now we know the crux and it was helping him die reconciled to God and to himself and to that moment that he should have never been put in and he was forgiven. And that is a release like none other. Yeah. You know, that guy changed my life. You can tell, man, I get, I get passionate about this and that's why I hate war so badly. I just hate it. And, and, and I will, I will do all that I can wherever I can. And and to, to just help people that have been injured in their soul. Yeah. Scott, that's profound, you know, for for a number of reasons. But one is that it really belies just that self-forgiveness and that that reconciliation of self, um, which is powerful because actually you're you're right. That's probably been a struggle that that he struggled with for over 30 years you know struggling to reconcile with with himself um and you know becoming at peace with with himself is yeah. is, is is a beautiful thing before before he died um yeah. and yeah can I, jump, can I jump in on that Owen about peace yeah. um I I, I had a, a another paradigm shift along the way when it came to peace um Peace is not like the absence of war, okay? Um, I go back to the Hebrew word shalom, and shalom means wholeness, W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S, and it means prosperity. So so shalom is wholeness. And, and, And in that moment when that guy had to do what he did, he no longer had wholeness. Does that make sense? So, so in soul injury, this, this is so profound. In soul injury, it's trying to re, they call it rehome, rehome, not just restore, but rehome, get everybody, these fractured parts of myself back 
home, so that I'm whole, so that I live holy, but I die holy. Not H-O-L-Y, but W-H. And, and that I can now prosper, even in the last moments of my life, I can be whole, but I can prosper in the sense of having a fullness because all that garbage that broke me apart, it's been reconciled in me. And I'm whole. Shalom is a is an amazing word. Um and 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 and, and I love it. Um it, it's it's it, it reminds me, it reminds me of um down in Haiti, uh, they speak uh, Creole, French, uh, Haitian Creole, and we say bonjour in the morning, right? Bonjour. You know what? You cannot say bonjour without kind of being upbeat. Like I can say, oh, good morning, you know? Like here in America, good morning, and I'm, I'm just like really crusty. Bonjour. Well, shalom, there's something about that word, shalom, that kind of exudes that, that peace, yeah. I, I'm the kind of guy that's going to find truth wherever I can find it and, and pull it together. And that word um, really helps me. It resonates with me as well, Scott, actually. And could you just speak to what you learned about active listening in that time in the, in the palliative care wards and as, as a pastor for palliative care people? Because that, that, that piece around active listening and being able to reiterate message back to people and honor them it probably set you up for life actually could you could you speak to what you learned through that yeah um let me share that story that i shared with you about the guy in his tractor uh so so just just for your audience so uh, i'm out here in rural and i actually even though my dad was a minister i grew up working on a farm at the age of 11. And so I know all about doing what I'm about to tell you. So this guy went out to plow in his field and it was a little too wet and he buried the tractor and it wouldn't move. The tires are just spinning. I've been there, done that. And, and he just shut off the tractor, got off the tractor, sat down in the mud and just stared at this thing. <laughs> and his buddy's driving down the road in his pickup truck and he sees his friend out there in the field with his tractor buried and so he pulls off to the side and he gets out and he walks across the field and he stands next to his buddy and he's looking at the tractor and he says, well, Jethro, I cannot get your tractor out of this mud, but I'll sit here in the mud with you. And, and, and active listening and being with people in their pain, no matter where it is, I just call mud sitting. Uh, you know, we think that we have to fix problems and, and whether you're a, a, a therapist or you're a counselor or you're even a medical person or a pastor, you live with this messianic complex, we call it, that I'm going to be the savior. I'm going to get that tractor out. Well, you know what? There's some tractors you're just not going to be able to get out. And people know that. And, and they're not asking you to fix it. Don't So don't pretend that you're going to fix it. Just sit in the mud. And <laughs> And if you sit in the mud, you may talk, you may not talk, you might make mud pies, you might end up laughing and throwing mud at each other, and the tractor's still there. But you know what? At some point, you're going to be able to get the tractor out, but not in that moment. 
And that's what I love about it. It's, it's sitting in the mud. If you are going to be an active listener, then by golly, be ready to sit in the mud. And you better deal with your own self of wanting to fix stuff. And I, I was slapped upside the head by my pastoral counseling professor right the day of graduation, okay? He called me into his office, all right? He calls me into his office and he goes, Scott, you know, you've always done all your homework. You aced everything I ever threw at you. But I'm going to tell you one thing as you go into pastoral ministry, you are a control person. And when you get out into the pastoral ministry, stop trying to control. Just be real. Just be transparent. And I, I forgot everything pretty much he taught me in class. But that last word made a difference. That's powerful. Don't, That's don't, yeah. don't, don't deal with these cliches. Don't tell a grieving parent, parent that, oh, God needed another uh, angel in his, in his choir when they're dealing with the death of their child. You're trying to get the tractor out. Just say, I'm sorry, and then shut up and sit in the mud with them. Scott, could you speak to how quickly we label mental health um, and maybe uh, a different way to look at that? Because, you know, we were talking the other week in New York around PTSD, yeah, you know, yeah. post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. And, you know, seeing it as a disorder and uh, uh, seeing a person as a disorder yeah. and how quickly that phrase is banded about. But how would you maybe reframe that? So what I learned uh, coming out of uh, Deborah Grassman's work and soul injury, um, the, thing that, the thing that really impacted me is that, first of all, trauma comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. When that little girl at five years old was told, we're going to have to sell the piano, sell the house, move across the tracks, you're not going to have any more pretty white dresses, that was horribly traumatic. She suffered from PTS. Now, I'm going to stop with the PTS because disorder, what I've learned, is a label that can keep people feeling hopeless. When I hear the word disorder, that I have PTSD, that D is very debilitating. It's deadly because disorder sounds like I'm just going to have to cope. I'm never going to get over this. I'm just going to have to learn to live with it. And, and where is there any hope if now I'm, I'm now labeled as having a disorder? The, and, you know, when you and I were walking along there, um, I, I'll, uh, there in New York, one of the things is that sea of humanity is coming at us. One of the things that I'm always thinking is everybody's carrying some sort of pain. Everybody has some sort of trauma. And, and, and the thing is, we have to be so careful. And, and if I'm dealing with somebody like you talk about Texas and, 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 the, and the massacre of these children, that's trauma. That's post-traumatic and stress is going to happen. But if I say the D, I have now consigned a whole population to a disorder that then makes it convenient to be able to control do you get that? So I stop with PTS. This is post-traumatic stress. And it is a C, not a D. It is a condition. Because if it's a condition and it's a soul injury, this is why I love the word soul injury so much, uh, Owen, is that, and you're a, you're a medical person. If I say that somebody's injured, if I apply certain principles, I can bring healing, right? That's what you're all about. 
So if I say it's a soul injury and not a disorder, immediately people hear healing. There, if I follow some some steps and, and, and submit myself to the people who help heal, I've got hope. But if it's a disorder, I'm hopeless. If that if that makes any kind of sense. That does, it does, and it's 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 far more ena- enabling rather than disabling. Um, and oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yes. and liberates yeah. rather than prohibits. Exactly, you, you're you're spot on. You're spot on, and 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 with that liberation, I I can now have wholeness. Hmm. If I know it's post traumatic stress. Yeah, what well, a lot of mental health is is to me, Scott. You know, after doing twenty years in preschool care, is uh-huh. is around positive feedback loops. Uh-huh. So, positive feedback cycles where it's an introspective feedback cycle. So, um, you know, the adage of you know stepping outside of yourself and doing something for someone else is great, and I get yes. that. But, yes. you, we, yeah, but you're right. Sitting in the mud with people, just listening to people, just trying to get alongside them, build rapport, because their feedback cycle albeit positive um and and compounding is so introspective that it it, 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 it's trying to build rapport and get access to that before you can start to get them to focus on anything else um Mm -hmm. and and then you know reverse it and become a negative feedback cycle Mm -hmm. um but they um but they need to uh know that you care and Mm -hmm. That is time spent well. So one of my mentors said to me, you can stand up for five minutes and look the person in the eye. Or you can sit down for five minutes. It's the same five minutes. But that you sitting down gives you the appearance you are my sole attention. You yep. are my, you are the reason why I'm here. He said, utilize things around you in your environment to facilitate rapport by, mm-hmm. by giving people the nonverbal inclination that they are your sole priority. And I thought, gosh, there's things in our environment we can harness that we just don't do. And yep. actually, by sitting down with the person gives you the appearance, but also, you know, not squaring shoulders off, holding eye contact, reiteration of message, bringing, bringing things to the fore to let them know that you are there for them and you are listening to them uh, is, is a powerful tools to really build rapport so that you can gain access to their individual and or internal narrative because that's what we really want scott we want access to internal narrative to then change that narrative or indeed maybe not even change it but speak to it and start to start to put in to that internal narrative positive messages of hope restoration of hope as you were saying before mm-hmm. scott just pivoting for, for for a second and coming back to something you were just saying around the texas shooting you know acute yeah. grief on a, on a on a massive scale um and is um even more so because it it, it involves young precious lives and my question to you scott really would be around could you could you speak to the acute grief process and um and your experience because of grief albeit a grieving mother or father because i think a lot of people and certainly the literature 
speaks to this linear process of denial, acceptance, anger. My own personal grief journey, when I've lost people or seen people lose people as a paramedic, is that it's messy, that it's not linear. It's it's everything at once. It can be an absolute cyclone of, of emotion. And that you've just got to, you've, you've actually got to zero the expectations uh, uh, of grief and because, and, and no two grief journeys are the same. Yeah, Could you speak yeah. to your experience? Yeah. And uh, I'll just throw this out as, as a, a segue. If, um, if people on your podcast would be interested later on to spend more time just dealing with grief because we all deal with it, but the problem is we don't know how to deal with it in a healthy way. So, uh, that same professor that re- kind of read me the riot act and opened my eyes, uh, he, he co-wrote a book. It's called All Our Losses, All Our Griefs. And it's powerful, Owen, because when you talk about that linear, so what he identified, and he, you're, you're talking about Kubler-Ross, the, the famous, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on death and dying, that people tend to go through these quote unquote stages, denial, anger and bitterness, depression, bargaining, acceptance, and so on and so forth. What they did is they took Kubler-Ross's beginning and expanded it to say loss or grief is the emotional response to loss, okay? But loss comes in all kinds of different ways, all right? So so why it's not linear is that, and I always use the, the, we've all cut open an onion. When you open up an onion, there's different rings, okay? Each one of those rings. So if this, if this represents the death of a person, what's happened is there's all these other losses that are simultaneously happening. And in each loss, Owen, you're going through the same grief, grief cycle because loss comes from having been attached and now I'm detached. Okay. So, so like when my dad died, I, I experienced the detachment of my father. Okay. But at the same time, there's other forms of loss. For instance, there was the loss, what we call relational loss. My dad was the only one that when he said, how's things going? You really knew because it was pastor to pastor. And he's really wondering, <laughs> you know, what's your, how's it going in the trenches, Scott? And, and then he's not there. So, so down in Texas, okay, it is, it, it is horrible because number one, people don't know that we're dealing with all these other layers. So grief is compounded. But one of the biggest ones that people don't know exists is that when a person dies, we go through what's called psychic loss, which is the loss of things in our mind, dreams, goals, hopes, visions, futures, and plans. I'm never going to see my little one grow up. I'm never going to get to see them play t-ball. I'm never going to walk them down the aisle. I'm never going to see them have my grandkids. See, we're always living in the future, okay? And, and psychic loss is monumental. It's spiritual. And, 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 and you'll hear it in the news. Well, so-and-so is never going to get to experience this. But what they don't understand is that they are talking about that person going through a layer 
of of loss that is that's this compounding this whole thing because in our worldview kids are not supposed to die before their parents or their grandparents kids are not supposed to be killed with guns they are we are our our schools are supposed to be safe places so all of this is shattering every one of us and we're all going through a grief process because something's died up here 9-11 caused america have america to have a corporate grief because we never thought that anything like this would ever come on our soil. So when I deal with people in grief, death and dying, I, I try to tell them there is all kinds of things. You know, we, we there's one thing we call systemic loss uh, from a system. So you're married, I'm married. I do certain things that my wife doesn't do. My wife does things that I don't do. If she dies and all of a sudden, who's going to take over her roles? <laughs> who's going to do that system? So that's a part of that onion. So that's how grief when people go through trauma there's a grief there something's died they may be physically alive everybody around them may be still physically alive but there's a lot of stuff that's died and they don't even know they're in a grief process divorce is a grief process amputation is a grief process and Scott, we are fundamentally loss-averse people. So if we have a, an uh, an equal gain and an equal loss, we'll focus far much more on the on the loss aversion than we will on the gain. But compound that times a million when you're right when a when a sibling or a child dies, um, which you write loss of potential, loss oh. of life, loss of relationship, loss of rapport, loss of future iteration, loss of. Um, all that loss of love um at once it can be completely overwhelming actually and i uh, probably reached the end of myself actually when i had to speak to three children that lost their father as a mm. as a as a critical care paramedic within yeah. the first wave of the coronavirus pandemic and you know couldn't break bad news to them you know they were they, they didn't know what happened to their father in the next room and uh, that he that he died and they were all chirpy and pulling at my at my uniform and and kind of making jokes and I didn't have it in me and um, and that's kind of the other way from 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 young to old but but the but the profound like you said the, the onion effect the the, the the loss of so many multifactorial relationships along uh, the, the seen and unseen mainly unseen um and, and main, mainly un, unquantifiable is 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 absolutely profound and again i think in that journey and it, it, it's sitting in the mud with people mm-hmm. rather than fixing uh even well, i had to sit in the mud consistently as a paramedic actually um because you can't fix you can't fix death you can't fix the fact um planned for or otherwise and what you had to do what i had to do is just listen and empathize because i've lost i've lost a sister-in-law at 27 i've Mm. i've lost family members young and old and um but but sit there and and, and listen uh, in the mud but ra- rather than try and fix things because that's it's not it's not time to fix things. Yeah. Um, but Scott, could you keep could you speak to 
some of your experiences around so loss of institution so what i'd be interested to know from you is um and we i've very much seen this and i'm imagining you have as well whereby um a colleague or friend or indeed um fellow churchgoer for yourself may may have been part of an institution like the military for 40 or 50 years and then comes the end of that service um and gets discharged at the end of their at the end of their time and then doesn't necessarily have the mental coping mechanisms or indeed the discipline or the structures in place that the institution have provided and then falls over because there is that fundamental lack of structure in their in their life and mm-hmm. and and you the hallmarks of it are maybe excessive drinking drug yeah. use um and and or otherwise could you speak to your experience of that and how to how you've steered people okay so uh, on your podcast you're going to have probably have some active or retired military and uh so i do i i support um veterans i'm a part of a a nonprofit uh, that i helped start with a friend of mine who's a veteran uh i've dealt with a lot of veterans in death and dying situations and my respect is so profound, but I understand something. They talk about two cultures. There is a civilian culture and the military culture. And the problem is, is that they don't do a very good job of preparing people to leave the military culture and somehow find a place in the civilian culture that is as tight, ordered, rewarded as as a military culture. And um, I've found that I've just got to sit in the mud and recognize and help them to recognize these are two different cultures. I'll tell you what's really cool and interesting is doing premarital coaching with somebody that's in the military and somebody, you know, it's usually, you know, the guy is in the military and then his, his, up, you know, his bride. And I got to talk to the groom about not coming home and expecting the bride to salute you. <laughs> my friend, my friend, he's a lieutenant colonel, and he goes, and 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 he worked, he worked in some very, very, very high level things, and he would tell me, Scott, I'm at this level all day long, and I come home, and my wife says, take the garbage out, will you? <laughs> and it's this, it's this conflict. But 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 when they leave the military, it's a grief process because they've been attached. But they've been attached to something that's so ordered, and their safety in, in, in sense of knowing where the boundaries are. Okay, there's a whole whole book on boundaries, and and having boundaries and finding safety in those boundaries because I know where the fence is. And and in the military, there's an electric fence, and I know <laughs> if I stray over that man, I'm gonna get zapped, and I'm gonna be doing you know a six mile run with a full backpack. But then you get into the civilian world, and people don't salute you, and 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 they drive you crazy. So it's hard, it's hard, and I don't think that anybody does a very good job of it. And then people in the military, they try to cope. And if, I, and if I have a chance to work with a veteran, it's like going, okay, so let's deal with grief. And let's try to find wholeness in that grief. 
Could you maybe just speak to the other end of the spectrum um, and the youth? Because the, I am continually affronted by contemporary uh, contemporary mechanisms in the climate, such as social media and otherwise, which affront good, healthy and balanced mental health. And, um, and that's sort of attacking the front end. And, you know, I'm a 42-year-old uh, man, you know, I... Uh, hopefully I've got some mechanisms in place to safeguard against sort of the, the, the you know, the comparison, the comparison culture and mm -hmm. you know, stealing my joy consistently. But yeah. could you maybe just speak to what you've seen around the contemporary culture at the other end of life and how you see that playing out? I've got a friend who is a trauma. Um, it's called trauma informed leadership. And we brought her into a collegium of pastors because we pastors are struggling with our kids. And you know, the kids and mental health and what COVID has done with schools and all of that craziness on top of what these poor kids have been dealing with all along. So um, she's going to do training, trauma-informed leadership. And one of the things she's talk she talks about, Owen, is that if you're going to be a leader, you first got to do that self-care that you kind of were talking about before so that you can find wholeness. And her word is synchronize. So active listening, when people say you really got to be present with somebody, well, if you are not synchronized with your own life's narrative, if you haven't gone through healing and you've got this fractured and you need rehoming, if things are not synchronized, you're going to have a real hard time being present with somebody because all these other things are pulling you and it's triggering and it's going to be hard to be in the moment. Just like, you know, sit down and, and eye to eye. It's very uncomfortable to do that, but the more you can synchronize. And, and I think that with kids, it's, it's become really challenging because they have gone through so much grief, but nobody understands it's grief. I'm going to keep, you know, for me, I keep going back to that. Their world has changed. Their, 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 their view of people has changed, their view of education, having to wear a mask and all these shields and not being able to do recess and doing stuff from home. What a mess. And we need to help these kids because it is PTS. That's what they're experiencing. It's trauma. But the problem is that we don't recognize it as trauma. And let me tell you about back in the 60s when I was growing up. So with the peace and love movement, um, there was also then a lot of people um, getting divorces. Because in, in America, we went from having a legal divorce to being able to have a disillusion. The, the disillusion became an easier course. Early on, therapists and social scientists and psychologists thought that kids were coping pretty well. They didn't seem to be having problems. Then these kids grow up and they get married and they are having serious, serious bonding problems. So this whole new level of study took place that we had missed it. These kids were traumatized, but we thought that they were doing fine when in fact they had the most adaptable coping mechanisms, but their souls had been injured. And that soul's injury was resurfacing as adults because of that. And there are two things, you know, with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I read another guy that boiled everything down into two needs. Security that says I'm safe. 
significance that says I'm important. And trauma calls both of those into question, which therefore causes me to not be whole anymore. And so that safe environment, when you sit down and you're eye to eye, Owen, you're telling a person, you matter, you're my starfish, my sole goal is to sit here in the mud with you, and we may not even have to say a word, but I am here. I'm here. So you're you're conveying to them, you're significant, but with me, you're secure, you're safe. And that's what's been called into question for all these kids, their security and their significance. And we can we can stop all this mumbo jumbo and just answer those two questions. How can I make these children more secure? And how can I make them more significant and understand their significance? Scott, that's profound um, because there's the real narrative of self-deprecation um, within yes. within social media and and yes. just in a in a very real way, uh, very real way, um, just the subtleties of of not being enough. You know, whatever you have, whoever you are, however you look, it's not enough. Yeah. you are not you are not enough and yeah. actually that's really damaging because if there's one thing I've learned growing up and meeting yourself and walking with yourself and exchanging stories with yourself knowing that you are enough is is, is powerful you're enough for the situation you're enough for life and it's not to say you're not learning but you you are enough you're enough for another person. You are yeah. worthy of love and worthy of yeah. being loved. And actually yeah. that's powerful yeah. and releasing. And, and I, I see that being affronted and called into question consistently over social media because comparison is a thief of joy and it's a thief, a thief of in being enough. And actually um, people are feasting on that. Mm-hmm. And they're scrolling and feasting on that principle. And it, I think... Uh, what it what it leads to is this real starvation of 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 self worth and and self appreciation. Scott, as we as we come in to land on the conversation, could I just get you to speak to um, some take homes really um, for listeners around um, everything we've just spoken about around sort of mental health and reframing that and and or grief and how people can approach. As you said before, number one, their own mental health and good sort of mental hygiene, really mm-hmm. keeping the keeping mental health, uh, uh, their own mental health in check, and how people might approach grief in all all its forms, because there there is uh, there's so much grief in the world uh, uh, today. Could you could I just get you to speak to some some salient take home messages? Remember that you do not have a soul. Remember that you are a soul and you have a body. To me, that's critical, and that's that's where I start. Uh, the second thing is, I believe we're created in the image of God, and in that, we have been given the power to create by speaking. So, a take home that I would like to have, just kind of based on about what you said, enough. Genesis one, God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. He spoke and then it became. Our words create a world. Our words have a power. And I I share this with people in premarital coaching. I said, before you exchange your vows, you're just a man and a woman. But as soon as you say those vows, you have 
created something that wasn't there before. You have now created what is called your marriage. Nobody else's, that's your marriage. You've created a whole new language for yourselves. You're a man and a woman over here. On the other side of what you spoke, you're a husband and a wife. That's that's totally different. So what I want people to say is that when you begin to speak for it, I am enough. I matter. I'm important. I can be whole. I can be healed. I need help. So as we speak this forth, and especially I tell people, sit in front of a mirror and tell yourself, I matter. I am the only one in the whole of human history that has this life to live. And by golly, somebody might have screwed it up and and traumatized me. But by golly, I'm not going to give them the keys to my inner kingdom. I'm going to grab those keys back. I'm going to find out how to get the healing because I matter. And I'm going to get back in that ocean. Even after I be a little starfish crawling, I matter. And so I want people to understand the power of words and the power of words that you and I can share with people. When we sit down, we look them in the eye and we say, I am here. It creates a new world. If we can say, you know what? You're going through grief. Oh, is that what that is? I never thought about it that way. We're shaping reality. So the power of words, I think, is divine. It's breath. And we're speaking into existence things that weren't there before. Scott, that's powerful. And it's a powerful place to leave the conversation. And just that 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 kind of uh, acknowledgement and um, recollection that actually your words going into a day are powerful and actually to steward them correctly because you never quite know how they'll land in someone else's life and or in someone else's garden. Um, I was going to say, it goes back to your garden. It goes back to those seeds, Owen. It goes back to those seeds. And and, I, and and when you're speaking to me, it's just the old-fashioned way of, of of scattering seeds. I have no idea about a soil, but man, if one of those babies can take root in your podcast, that's what's so great, man. You are you are helping scatter seeds, and I I hope I've scattered good seed for people, and and I'm praying that there will be receptive soil, and and it will be watered, and sun will shine on it, and there will be growth, and then it will bear fruit. Scott, what I'd like to do as we finish off, because I think this is a fantastic conversation, I'd like to anchor some of the points you've made uh, in the show notes. I'll, what I'll also do is anchor some of the, I'll mention some of the books that you you mentioned okay. in, in, in okay. resources, because yeah. I think it'd be good for people to go back over the, the conversation and to, and to look up some of the resources, because it's powerful. And what you said over the past hour, Scott, is, is powerful. It's a really uh, powerful reminder that actually life is lived in between plans, in between the big elements of life. And it's, it's the small things that matter, the thoughts, the words, the, the fellowship, the, um, the seeds, and just and this, the acknowledgement that you are enough. But Scott, I just uh, want to thank you for your time. I'd like to have you on the podcast again because I really appreciate your perspectives and your insights. Thank you and bless you and bless all your people.